All right, good morning. All right, let's see if we, we'll try that one more time. Good morning. Okay, that's better, folks. A little, little tired, a little windy this morning. Okay, we're um, going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. Great passage on um, singleness, marriage, and sex. So we're going to get into that and um, go talk about this, this discussion that's important for each one of our lives. Um, in this passage, there's really something for everybody in the room today. There's no person that's not affected by some aspect of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So there might be specific places or portions that aren't for you um, or aren't for you at this point in time in your life, but there is something in here for you this morning, rest assured. Um, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get right into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We uh, thank you for your goodness to us, God, for your love for us. Please help us this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the time we've had just to sing your praises already this morning, Lord. Uh, we look forward to more of that and to more of just lifting your name on high, dear God. And so we pray that this morning, as we look into your word, that you would teach us from your word, that you would encourage us, and that you would help us uh, to seek your will for our lives in all things that we would submit ourselves to you, God, that we would seek to be obedient, that we would know, as we previously saw in chapter 6, that we are not our own, but that we were bought at a price, and that price was the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross for our sins and that you rose from the dead, that you're a risen Savior and that you will return as King, and we look forward to that day. And until that day, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. So we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. All right, so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, let's have a little bit of context here. Just before we get into this, as we're talking about singleness, and we're talking about marriage, and we're talking about sex, that this 1 Corinthians chapter 7 um, has a context to it, and we need to understand that context. First, it's context was within the book of 1 Corinthians and what is happening in the Church of Corinth, when this book is written, and what is going on in the culture and in society at that time. So let's talk about the context of the whole Bible for a minute as we look at this subject of marriage, um, to begin with marriage and singleness and sex. And we go back to Genesis 1, and we go back to the Garden of Eden, and it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Okay, so we have that this morning for, part of, for our context, that from the very beginning, God created you know, human beings, God created you know, Adam and Eve. He made them man and woman, male and female, um, and he told them to be fruitful and to multiply. So there is that context that God created um, us as human beings. He created marriage. He created unity between a man and a woman. Um, and so that's going to be what is you know, normative for the human experience. It's going to be normal for people to get married, to have kids, uh, to raise a family. Uh, and that's how we as a human race are going to continue on. Um, if, you know a good number of people did not do that, then we would cease to exist as human beings, right? So that's kind of the setup, the standard. Now we have what is going on at the church in Corinth in this time. Specifically, in this church, we have a lot of difficulties. We have divisions. We have lack of leadership, disorder, lack of discernment, sexual immorality. All of these things are going on. So there's a context in which these instructions are given. There's also, um, as we talk about that in verse 26 of chapter 7, Paul talks about the present or impending distress. You can kind of, with the translation from the Greek to English, it could go either way, from present or impending. Um, but this, there's this idea there that there could be more persecution for followers of Jesus. And so that also plays into the, the context of what is being said. That being stated, though, we have the Word of God 
Um, and as church, as Paul writes to the to the church here at Corinth, multiple times in the book, he talks about this being his, you know, his counsel or, or the wisdom of God for, you know, you know, all the churches. And so this advice is also very applicable for every church, for every people in every place and every time. Um, and but there may be specific things that we do have to consider the the specific context of what's going on in the church of Corinth a little bit more so that we do not make um, broad generalizations from specific um, points, okay? Does that make sense? Now, as I say that and ask if things are making sense, uh, which I hope they are at this point, if at any point you have a, a question you can, you can text it. We'll just do that this morning. You can text it, 706-202-8977. You can text your question. Um, if there's, I can get back to you individually, or if there's something that's good for the whole, perhaps at the end, we can hit one or two of those. Uh, so feel free to do that, or if it's something that isn't too pressing or isn't about something that's not clear, then um, you, know, we can, you can do that at a different time through email, Facebook, whatever. So, let's get into chapter 7. Let's go ahead and read the first nine verses. And we're going to attempt to finish the book. This, I mean, not the book. Sorry. Woo. <laughs> just go ahead and just settle on in. We're going to be here until sometime tomorrow. No, we'll uh, attempt the chapter today, which will be a plenty of a challenge on its own. So, it says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as, as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. But I say to the unburied and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, we'll stop there and talk, address a few things there because these first nine verses kind of set up this, the scene for the rest of the chapter. And so it's important that we spend a little bit of time and, and we get what's being said here. Understand in verse 1 that Paul is responding to specific questions that were asked by the church at Corinth concerning marriage and singleness. So he's addressing specific questions that are being asked to them, and so now he's going to give his answer. Um, He takes the position that singleness can be a blessing and is a blessing, and he knows this from his own personal experience. Remember, Paul is writing as someone who is not married. Um, and even um, in another place, he talks about uh, Peter, you know, being married and, you know, don't we have this same right? But he did not exercise that right to be married so that he could be 100% devoted to the Lord's work. Um, and so that is part of the context here as well. Is Paul's, you know, own personal experience and his personal experience of knowing the blessing of singleness. Now, um, Again, as, as, we say, as I say that, you know, we all have a context, even our, each one of us. You know, I, I personally um, was able to get married. <laughs> I say that because I wanted to get married. Um, by the time I was about 28. So there was a number of years there where I was single. So I understand single want to be single. I understand single don't want to be single, want to be married, but nothing happening. I understand being single but being committed. You know, being single and being committed in a relationship but not married and the challenges that are there and then being married and the blessing and challenge that it is as well. Um, and so some of us will experience multiple stages of this, you know, through our lives. Other people, um, their stage of singleness is very short because they get married when they're quite young or others, you know, have a large portion of their life is single, in singleness or their whole life um, is, is being single. So there's different contexts that, that you have or different situations, and so we want to address those and address those fairly. But the key to the chapter is at the end of verse 7. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. 
so Paul views it, and it's the right view of Scripture, of the right view of God, that both singleness and marriage are gifts from God. We'll see that played out a little more fully as we go along. And the important thing is for you to understand, particularly if you are currently single, is to understand whether this is a, a gift that you've been given. Whether it's a temporary state that you have, uh, that you're currently experiencing, or whether it is a permanent gift that God has given to you. And so one of the two is, is true there, and we can see which one that is. So he also addresses here that one reason to get married is to avoid sex- sexual immorality. Because sexual immorality is a disgrace to the church. It drags the name of Christ um, through the mud, and it's, uh, it's a very problematic thing in this time and in ours today. Okay, So it's better for single people to get married than to be having illicit sex with others in the church or in the community. Okay, So he talks about several things there, about people you know, not having self-control or burning you know, with passion. It is better to be married... To go, ahead, to go ahead and get married than to be single when you haven't been given the gift of singleness and are just struggling and oftentimes failing and committing sexual sin. He also takes time in these first few verses to address to the married people and to give some important instructions. So we want to go ahead and address those while we're here. The first is that you are sexually responsible for one another if you're married and need to seek the meet, to meet the needs of your spouse. This goes both ways male to female, or husband to wife, wife to husband. So, and, and then he makes a caveat there. He says, if you're, if you're not having, basically, if you're not having sex on a regular basis or as your relationship needs it, then that is because of a, of a mutual agreement to fast and to pray. And that's only going to be for a short time because you can only go without physical food for so long. So when your time of fasting and prayer is finished, then you're supposed to return to the normal activities of being married. And we just need to state that marriage and sex go together like peas in a pod. You know, it's, it's part of what it is to be married is to have sex. That's normal, you know, the normal relationship, um, and it's important for a healthy marriage. If that's not happening, then that's usually indicative that there are difficulties or problems um, of some sort. Those problems could be, be for several reasons. It could be a communication problem. It, because, it could be because other parts of the relationship are not healthy. Uh, other needs are not being met in that relationship. So one of the people or both of the people in that relationship don't have the desire to have sex with the other person because it's good to have, you know, to be loving your spouse and that leads to sex, not just sex for the you know, sexual act itself. Okay, um, And so there, that's indicated that there are other problems there or that there's things that from the past that have not been dealt with and need to be uh, handled through counseling and through prayer and these things. But if, if there is a difficulty in that area, if both the husband and the wife are not satisfied with the, you know, quantity or quality of sex within the relationship, then that is a reason to seek counsel and to have serious conversation with a godly couple or a godly therapist who can help and give instruction on those things or maybe even uncover the underlying reasons for that and the root of that and to deal with those roots. Not having sex in a marriage is not usually the problem itself. It is a symptom of a greater problem and that that needs to be dealt with so that this important aspect of the marriage can be healthy um, and enjoyable for both. So that's very, very important. It's really interesting that we live in such an oversex culture, yet many, many people who are married are not having you know, sex like they should, because, you know, even in a culture of overstimulation, and even single people who are worldly and care nothing about what the Bible says of marriage, you know, we live in this over-sexualized culture, and there's probably a lot less sex actually occurring than you think there is because of the fallenness and depravity and because of difficulties in relationships and uh, all, sorts of, all sorts of reasons. But anyway, 
Let me just put a plug in as well for those who are not married yet. For pre, and you're, if you're getting married or you know that's you see that in your future, just to plant the the seed of the importance of premarital counseling. Uh, personally, I'm not going to perform a marriage ceremony of, without marriage counseling. It's hugely important to set the foundation uh, correctly to go ahead and discuss things that could be you know issues coming up, even to see if there's a reason why this marriage shouldn't happen you know, to begin with, but it's, it's a hugely important uh, thing that we're responsible for. And with that, it also sets a healthy framework, a healthy groundwork for when there are problems to discuss those because you've already been in the practice of discussing your difficulties even before you got married. And so, you know, many people today, they don't discuss problems in their marriage until it's I don't want to say too late because, you know, I'm a, I'm a hopeful person. I don't think things are too late, too late. But they wait way too long. We can just say it that way. They wait way too long to seek help and to admit that there's problems in the marriage. Because we live in a Christian culture where it's important to look your best on Sundays and to, you know, not so much in our church, but, you know, you know to, but it's important to, to look at, I'm just saying, you know, we're not a big, like, suit and tie, we're not a big suit and tie church, or fancy dress church, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, we're more of a casual, you know, casual work Friday, or come as you are, or shorts and t-shirt, or whatever you want to do, as long as it's decent, is appreciated, but that's the sort of, you know, that's, that's the sort of church that we are, Right? Um, but in many places, it's important, and we can still have the we can still have the same issue though, of making sure that everything looks right, and that everything is good and everything is healthy. And I'm a you know I'm a good follower of Jesus, and I don't have problems, and you don't have to worry about me. And so the stuff that's real, I can just keep hidden and suppressed because I don't want people to judge or to look down upon or to think you know well. You know, they can be, well, if nobody else has this problem, why do I have this problem? And there's many things that the enemy can use to keep us from being honest about our problems and open about our problems so that we can receive help. Scripture tells us, confess, even to confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. And some of these things that cause problems are sins, and some of the things that cause problems are not sins, but there are Difficult. There may be the sins of other people or the sins of our culture that have become barriers or difficulties uh, for some. And as I say this about these needs being met, there's this, the principle to this here is that if the sexual need is not met, then one person in that relationship may look to have that sexual need fulfilled somewhere else. It can lead to an affair. But that being said, there's also an application as we're talking about needs that many, many times, I think more often for women than for men in this case, and I don't want to say too many things that are that gender specific, but I do want to say this one, that it's more common that a woman will not have her emotional needs met. And then there's another guy who is, he's willing to, see that need and he's a snake of a guy he's a snake of a dude he sees that need he sees that void he's cunning enough and he's smart enough not to go straight for the sex but he knows to meet that emotional need to be the listener and the sympathetic ear and the affirmer but all for the purpose of leading to the bed. That's his ultimate goal in it. Ladies, don't be deceived. Married ladies, don't be deceived. If some dude is meeting the emotional needs that your husband is not meeting, trust me, he wants more than just meeting your emotional needs. He's not going to be satisfied with just that. You can bank on it. But you also have the instructions. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this is just my experience and, you know, 
what I've seen over the years that the vast majority of the time that the husband is doing his job to love his wife as Christ loved the church, that the marriage is usually going to be a good and healthy marriage. There are times when there's a difficulty. The woman has a, the wife, the spouse has a, a sin that is unconfessed or a, an issue in her life that she has not dealt with, and that leads to big problems in the marriage. That does happen. So I don't want to take that away because that needs to be addressed and dealt with. But for the majority of cases... If the man does his job, as the scripture says here, to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that the marriage will be in a good place and will be healthy. Because he's at least going to be attentive to see the problem. And, then it, and, and if he cannot address it, which guys, we want to be problem solvers, but sometimes we don't have the skills necessary, but he can at least know then, hey, we need help here and seek it and ask for it. Okay. Last advice on this, and we'll move along. Um, this is practical. If one of, of the, the husband or the wife is unsatisfied with the quality or the quality of the sex life, that is not the time to quote the scripture <laughs> of 1 Corinthians 7 and say, you see what the word says here about your responsibilities. That's probably, well, always not going to go well. That pretty much just ensures that you're going to get the cold shoulder for a long time. Okay? So you can have that conversation perhaps when things are very calm and the framework has been set and you've been doing your job as a loving spouse and then say, I think we need to get help in this area of our marriage. Okay? There's a wise way and a foolish way to handle those sorts of things. All right. Let's move along. Verse 10. uh, Verses 10 and 11. So here he's addressing people who are married. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Um, in some cultures, you know, it was really only the, the husband that could do the divorcing. The wife could remove herself from the situation. She could be separated, but she couldn't be the one to legally file for the divorce. In other cultures, you know, the woman, the woman can legally file for divorce. So we have to take these verses based on, you know, the context, um, the particular cult- culture context that we're applying them to. But, the, but there's a general principle here for the husband and for the wife is to stay married. That's the goal, to be married to death do you part, okay? To be married for your whole life. Um, he says a wife is not to depart from her husband, but then he makes a caveat. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband because there are times when a wife has to depart because it's not safe. You know her physical safety, or the safety of the, the and the well-being of the chil- of their children, if they have any, are at stake. You know, perhaps the the husband has gone into full-blown alcoholism, and when he gets drunk, he's abusive, or perhaps he's just become abusive physically, verbally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is. Uh, and it's a dangerous situation to be in. But in that case, she's supposed to maintain the position of hope. It says to let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Like, because, you know, if she, if she leaves him and then marries someone else, then it's really hard to undo things. It's really hard to undo things. Things get more and more messy, more people who are brought in. So it's the, the safer thing to do here is to wait and to pray and to hope that, this guy comes to know Jesus or comes you know, back into his fellowship with Jesus and then that the marriage could be restored and to be healthy. Um, because here the instruction is a husband is not to divorce his wife. Usually, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's just a much more rare thing that the husband is physically in danger. It's just, you know, male and female and that we are a little bit different. It does happen on occasion, 
where there's an abusive wife and the guy is unable to defend himself. But in most cases, it's going to be the other way around. Um, but still, the, the instruction for the husband is not to divorce his wife, that we're supposed to strive for, for peace and for unity in our marriages and to um, be loving because marriage is, again, supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is supposed to show us something higher than the physical relationship. Uh, it, it's to help us to see clearly, you know, it's supposed to give us a good picture. Um, and so it, it needs to be a healthy marriage in order for, for the picture to be, um, you know, the reality of Christ and the church, right? So that's what we're striving for there. Now, let's read verses 12 through 16. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For do you not, for do you, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, so again, here's the context. You know, adults are coming to know Jesus um, in, in the city of Corinth. And some of these are already married. And so you'll have one person who, you know, you have a married person who comes to know the Lord, but the spouse has not come to know the Lord yet. Okay, that's the context, and that's the context for these, that's how we would apply these verses in our context today, is that two people are married, one of them comes to know Jesus, the other one doesn't know Jesus yet. So the question that they're writing to Paul is, should the person, now they're a believer, should they just divorce and leave the unbeliever? Perhaps there's a feeling of, you know, this person is worldly and does worldly things, and I don't want to be part of that. Now that I know Jesus and I know better, I want to just be around God's people. I just want to be around people in the church. I don't want to have anything to do with my spouse anymore. Because that's hard. It's difficult to live with this person who isn't a believer. And so that's being addressed, and the answer is, if the unbeliever is willing to, then you should stay married. And that's true whether the unbeliever is the, the wife or the husband, whichever way that is. You're to, you're to stay married. And now we have some questions. What does he mean by the, the, uh, the spouse being, made, you know, being sanctified? What does he mean by the ch- children being made you know, holy? Is he saying then that if one person in the family comes to know Jesus, that by extension the rest of the family members are now saved and right with God? Not at all. That's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here is that sanctified, sanctified means to be set apart. Um, is just what the word means. Okay, and so what's happening here is because this unbeliever is married to a believer, they're in a special category, they're in a special place where they are have the, God's protection on them and... Um, a special op- basically what the, this is the key to it they have special opportunity to know Jesus because they're living with somebody who now knows Jesus they get to see firsthand witness of how that person's life has changed how their attitude has changed how their anger and hatred has got, gone away and it's been replaced by love and forgiveness how their you know restlessness in life has been replaced by peace how their foul mouths have been changed to clean, clean language and uplifting language. How they went from being some, a discourager to being an encourager. You know, they've seen real change firsthand that's hard to deny. So there's a special place of enjoyment that they have, uh, or opportunity, I should say, that they have uh, for salvation that not everybody gets, because they get to see this changed life firsthand. You know, and, and what if the person, what if the believer leaves the, the spouse and the children to go off on their own? 
Well, now those children are not being taught the Word of God and the ways of God and having the godly example in their home, but they're just left with the unbeliever who is now bitter about you know, what happens when somebody comes to know Jesus, they leave you. You see, so they, just a spirit of bitterness would grow and um, many difficulties from that for the children. That goal, the purpose, is to live at peace, to do what is, is necessary to help uh, that unbeliever come to know the Lord. But sometimes in that case, departing is what would bring the peace. Because if that unbeliever is unwilling to live with the believer any longer, if the believer just you know hangs you know is in there saying, "No, I won't," you know you can't leave me, you can't, you know, and fighting, and it's just creating a situation of turmoil. Perhaps it would be to say, better in this case because one is unbelieving to say, "Okay, I'm going to step aside. I'm not going to remarry because I'm going to hope that you will believe in Jesus and come to know Him." you know, and separate for a time, perhaps. But that would be the extreme case and uh, not the desire, should not be the desire of the believer's heart. Okay. Since in our context here, we have mostly singles and marrieds, and not in this case. So how, you know, this seems like a situation you would want to avoid, right? So how do you avoid this situation if you know Jesus already? You avoid this situation by not marrying somebody who is not a believer. Okay? You don't marry someone who doesn't know Jesus. That's how you avoid this situation if you are a single person now who knows the Lord. How do you avoid not marrying somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus? How do you avoid that? Is it complicated? Is it hard to figure out the answer to that question? No, it's not. Sometimes it might be hard to apply the answer. But the answer itself is very simple. You do not date. You do not go out with. You do not give attention to a person of the opposite sex who does not believe in Jesus. And I'm going to go further than that. Because in this age of Christ, you know, all the time, you know, so, well, you know I, I've got a boyfriend now, or I've got a girlfriend now. Okay, are they a believer? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they say they're a Christian. Oh, okay. And, and how do you know that in their life? Because in this cultural Christianity, you see, they think they've, they've passed the, you know, the checkbox. Christian, check. Check. And oh, I'm done with that. I don't have to worry about that. Now I can just... She's beautiful, or he's cute, or he's funny, or he's nice, or whatever I like. I mean, just focus on that part. Not so fast, my friend. Hold on. Are they a believer? Is there evidence that they're a believer? Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. And in this case, if you're going to link yourself with this person, hopefully for the rest of your life, it, might, it better not be, well, I mean, I see a little bit of fruit. I see some things. I'm a little... Com- no. It needs to be obvious. There needs to be fruit. Like, you need to see fruit by the bushel. I mean, all over the place. There's, there's a storehouse of fruit. This person knows Jesus. And they're growing. And I can see this person continuing to grow in their walk with Jesus throughout their life. I don't see this person as someone who's just satisfied with where they are, who's just kind of plateaued out, and is just going to drift on into cultural junk. Who's just going to get sucked back into the world and the ways of the world. A person who's just going to ignore their responsibilities to Jesus and the church. I'm going to tell you right now, you need to seriously consider if the person that you are interested in or are currently in a dating relationship with or are engaged to, whatever is pre-marriage, however far, wherever on the spectrum that is, before your vows have been made, if you do not see a person who is going to be part of a local church and involved in that community, like in and out, blood, sweat, and tears, in good times and bad times, 
and is going to be a person who maintains their own relationship with God, who cares about their own relationship with God enough that that, that is the priority, even over you, it's time to walk away. Okay? It's time to walk away. That may be just the wake-up call that other person needs. But don't fall for the, oh, I'm going to get serious about God now. Don't leave me. I'm going to get serious about God now. You walk away. You see if he's serious from God a year from now. Let's give that some time. Not one week of I've had my devotions every day and I've been to small group or house fellowship or whatever and Sunday, will you take me back now, please? I'm sorry. No, you need to see it. And you need to see it over some time. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Because you know what happens in a relationship when you're married, when one person stops being part of the church community, stops taking their fellowship with God seriously, stops investing spiritually? Man, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. And it usually just, you know, it's one of those things the other person usually just gets drugged right on down with it. And I'm telling you that not from like some theoretical, you know, pie in the sky, whatever. I'm telling you that from on the ground, on the front lines, seeing it in people's lives, witnessing it time and again. And it's a call, it's a desperate call to those of you who are not not made those vows yet that you don't make them to the wrong person. And you know what? You can love somebody, and that person still be the wrong person for you. You can love the wrong person. And if you get that, it might be really painful, but it's better to have the pain on the front end than the pain in the vow. Because you can pay for that pain in the vow for a long, long time. Okay. Verses 17 through 24. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so are ordained in all the churches. There again, that call. All the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandment of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Okay, so here, let's just stop for a minute because the Apostle Paul is setting up a principle. He's using a principle to set up a proposition. Okay? He's using a principle about what were you like when you, called, when you were called. When you came to know Jesus, were you circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, if you were circumcised, well... I think you're staying circumcised. But if you're uncircumcised, you don't need to become circumcised. Okay? You don't need to become circumcised. If you were called when you're a slave, but then it's, you know, he has a situational thing here. You're called when you're a slave, don't worry about it. It's not the biggest thing. Yeah, you might not like the position you're in, but it's not the biggest issue because these eternal things are much greater. But if you have an opportunity to be free, hey, be free. But understand this, that he was called to the Lord by a slave as the Lord's freedman. You're free where it really counts. And if you're, if you're called when you're free, hey, you're a slave where it really counts because you belong to Jesus. You were bought at the price. There's that phrase again. You were bought at the price. 
do not become slaves of men, meaning don't volunteer yourself, volunteer yourself for slavery. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So that's just your general principle. But then he says in 20, verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made tr- trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you, abound, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He was unmarried, cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he was married, cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about, cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she was married, cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she has passed the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So that he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be buried to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Got it? All right. It's good stuff, good stuff. Let's break it down a little bit. Again, the context, because of the distressing situation or the impending situation, it's Paul's recommendation that the single people in Corinth do not marry. But those who do marry are not sinning. They're not sinning if they do. Paul wants to be clear about this because he does not want people to think he's against the gift of marriage that God gave you know, humanity from the beginning. Okay, But he is making a distinction and it's the same thing that Jesus teaches. Matthew 19, 12, 12, sorry, Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 through 12. So the disciples said to him, because the, the question, they're talking about marriage and divorce and what's right to do and what's wrong to do. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Like, that's the conclusion they come to. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to them, those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Okay? That, whoa. Tough words from Jesus, right? So what's he saying? He's saying that people are eunuchs for different reasons. And now, culturally, what would happen, you know, as you read even in the Old Testament, and even in this time, um, in certain nations, or in certain times, a king would have many wives. Now, he's concerned that someone else is going to sleep with one of his wives and have children, and then it won't be his direct descendants that take his throne, but someone else's. So his wives have things that they need, and they need help with various things or whatever, and so they would have female servants, but there was also a need for some male servants. So they would just make these guys eunuchs. So they wouldn't have the potential to you know, pass on their seed, because they don't have the ability to have seed anymore. Now they've been made a eunuch, right? Um, so that's, a, that's like the context of eunuchs at this time that these things are written. But Jesus says some have made themselves eunuchs, and he doesn't mean so physically, that they've taken a physical act to make themselves a eunuch, but they have purposed in their hearts that they are going to stay single, that they are not going to marry for the sake of the kingdom 
of heaven. And Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Are you able to receive singleness for the purpose of the kingdom of heaven for your life? If you're able to receive it, receive it. The reality is that most are not able to receive this. Most have not been given this gift. Most have been given the gift of marriage. And so the majority should receive the gift of marriage, enjoy marriage, understand you're not sitting by getting married, and move on. There's also something here that whether single or married or what you've been called to that Paul is getting at that even goes beyond the current distress or the impending distress. And that is that the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus has the same viewpoint, the kingdom of heaven is more important than the, you know, what goes on here on this earth. The situation that you have, that you're in, whether you're single or married. Ultimately, what we're saying with this is Jesus is more important than whether you're married or single. That Jesus is to be your place of ultimate satisfaction in life. He's the one you are to be striving for. So if you're currently single, yet you have desires to be married, you should be content in the state that you are in right now and use that to its advantage. And when you're married, you're to be content in the state that you're in being married. A married person should not be going around going, man, I wish I was single because then I could do more for Jesus. You know, that's not the attitude that Paul wants us to have here or God wants us to have here and these things at all. What's interesting and unique about this is that Jesus and Paul actually give validity to being single, that it's a viable option for you. And in most cultures, even today, there's a stigma that's attached with not being married. And so this stigma is basically taken away by Jesus and Paul and saying, hey, you can devote yourselves fully to serving the Lord. So that's pretty cool. But again, I'm going to just go ahead and, and state statistically that most people are not given this gift. Most people are given the gift of marriage. Uh, I mean, in terms of, I don't mean statistically by numbers of people who are single, numbers of people married. I mean, statistically by terms of the number of people who desire to be married and desire to have companionship, desire to have a spouse, right? Most people have that need that's just beyond, uh, that would be a nice idea. They have that need in terms of a real, like, felt need in their life, okay? I hope that that helps to make some sense in that. And again, we also have to take in the context of the distresses. You know, would you give the same advice to single people living today in the United States, uh, to believers in the United States, as you would to believers in Syria or Iraq right now? You know, here, we don't have immediately on the horizon, you know, a great wave of persecution that we see coming. Hey, if you've got some prophecy and you know it's coming, you know, you can let us know, right? But this is what I'm saying with that. We don't see something, like, impending to us at this moment. If, you know, bombs are going off all around in, you know, your communities and you're a single person, that might not be the best time to take a spouse and to start having a family. You would want to consider that. It doesn't, and, and what Paul would say, it wouldn't be a sin to, but just understand that with that is going to come you know, some greater difficulties for you. And so there would, perhaps, you know, we would give advice differently in different situa- to believers in different situations at different times. So what is your situation? What has the Lord called you to do? You know, many times God's called a person to be a missionary in another place, in a difficult place. And the problem for them is not that they get married, but they marry someone who has a different calling than that. Be better for that person to stay single than, and to, follow, to be obedient to what the Lord wants them to do than to marry someone who has a different calling and not be obedient to the Lord, not ever go. Because let's just be real, if one 
it feels called to go to live in a very difficult place and the other doesn't, what are you going to do? You're going to end up in the not difficult place. You're going you're to default to what the person who doesn't want wants. Does that make sense? And you need to understand that. That's why it's important to be on the same page. That's why it's important that before you get married, as much as you can be on the same page with your life goals and purposes and desires, that you can be with the other person, the better. Because you're going to have a hard time convincing somebody who wants to live in the suburbs to go live with a dirt floor. You understand? You're going to have a hard time convincing that person of that. And it's not that the Lord couldn't change their heart. But how about we work on, if the Lord's going to change their heart, we have that happen before you make the vow and you get locked in for life. And that it's real. That person is changing, not just because they want to please you, but that they're changing because God is actually the one changing their heart. Perhaps it's what God had for them all along and they've just been blind to it the whole time because they haven't been made aware or they haven't been paying attention. We'll close up with a, few, a couple more thoughts and then we'll be done with this. I mean, obviously, um, there's specific things in here that we can't get to everything in the time that we have a lot and there's more to dig into. There's more to look into, certainly. What have you been called to? Are you single? Is it a gift or is it a temporary circumstance? In either case, you need to keep looking to Jesus, right? That's the bottom line in all of it for all of us. But keep looking to Jesus and seeking his will for your life. But if you're, you know, if you're unsure that you know, if you think Jesus might have you be single, then it's probably not a good idea to go try to have a bunch of dates. You want to get that issue taken care of with the Lord of what he's called you to before you, oh, I'm going to date this person, that person. Oh, I'll go out on a date with you, sure. You, say, you ask me, I'll say yes. You, know, you want to have that a little bit clear in your own heart before the Lord. If your singleness is temporary, and you know it's designed to be temporary, like that you have that, or you have at least that heart's desire to be married and to have that relationship with a, another person. Let me let me just encourage that we not do what is common in our world today. What's common in our world today is to casually date without commitment, to casually date without any real intention, just to kind of float from here to there. Well, that's where people get in trouble. You know, that's where people end up getting, you know, their emotions get them in trouble and they start to like someone whom they really shouldn't because they're either not a believer or they're not a mature believer, they're not growing in their faith. And that like turns to love and that love turns to engagement and that engagement turns to marriage and then there we go. We can avoid all of that and we can avoid a lot of the other problems by being serious up front and you know, having more discernment on the front end of who it is that we're dating. And so the question there comes into, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Because I'm talking in our context. We don't, in our context, we usually don't do arranged marriages and whatnot. The closest thing we do to that is, hey, I know this guy who could be really good for you. That's a, I mean, but that's not anywhere close to an arranged marriage. That's a, an opportunity of suggestion of here's a person you two might be compatible. All right? But what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And clearly, scripturally, the first thing you have to be looking for is the character of the other person, who they are now and who they can be. And marriage is part of the process for many of us of getting us to where we should be because it exposes our sins, it exposes our faults, it exposes our shortcomings, and then we need to recognize those and to deal with them. If you get married, marriage should make you a better, marriage should make you a better follower of Jesus. 
Because that other person should be making you a better follower of Jesus, helping you to become, I should say. So look for the character first. If the character is not there, then the other issues don't matter. Right? Right? I understand. We all understand. There's a need to be somewhat attracted to the other person physically, you know, their personality, those sorts of things. That's important. But those things have got to be secondary to character. Because there's a reality. We all get old. Just going to say it. I was going to say it. We all get older. And you can be, there's a different types of beauty. But the same thing that you're looking for when you're 18 is different than when you're 50. At least I would hope so. Right? Hopefully you've matured. Okay? Just going to say that. You know, sometimes it's funny. We can say things that are true and still be offensive, even when we don't mean to be. But this is our life. Um, what are you going to do? Are you going to go for the, the surface things first, or are you going to go for character first? Are you going to be serious, or are you going to be a person who breaks a bunch of hearts, maybe gets your own heart broken a bunch of times? And that's something we need to address. And I'd say this as a person, you know, we, again, we all have context. And as I said, you know, I would, until, you know, Claire, you know, that, that was what? 20, I was 25, 26? I guess 25, 26, something like that when we first started dating. I'm terrible with dates and numbers and all that stuff. Just forgive me. My wife knows this. But anyway, before then, I was one of the, you know, I, I, when I first came to Athens, I intentionally didn't date because of, you know, helping to start the church. But even before that, um, I was one of, those, one of those guys who was pretty much an idiot. You know, I could manage to do all the wrong things. Like a lot of guys. But I could manage to do all the wrong things. Um, I broke hearts. A couple, I have to say. But I also had mine broken a few times. From being stupid, basically. Not necessarily intending to, but acting without thinking. Doing things that could be misconstrued, not even intentionally, intentionally sometimes just being boneheaded and other times just being, being a simple person. Just being a person, who's, being a person who's broken. And every one of us is a person who's broken. Every one of us is a person who has issues. And, you know, and when it comes to relationships and dating and these types of things, lots of people have different skill levels different abilities and different comfortabilities in their talking with a person from another, you know, of the opposite gender. And so there needs to be some grace there. And I'm thankful, my wife, I did some things that were pretty dumb early on in our dating. And I'm thankful that she had some grace in that because it would have been pretty easy for her to just be like, boop, kick me to the curb. So she had to put up with some of my not knowing what to do or exactly how to do it type things. And as our relationship went on, I had to put up with some of her insecurities and some of her fears, you know, and, you know, her negative experience with her father and how that affected her and whether she wanted to be committed or not. And I had to deal with some of those issues. But everybody has something. You, know, you bring, no matter who you are and how great you think you are, you bring a certain amount of baggage into a relationship. And that baggage needs to get unpacked and dealt with. A lot of it just needs to get thrown into a fire, get burned up, get thrown in a garbage can, whatever, because it'll just damage whatever relationship you're in. So we've got to deal with those sort of things. But you've got to have some grace toward that other person. Don't expect that other person to be perfect, either when you're dating or when you're married. But what you're looking for there, again, is that underlying key character. Does this person love Jesus? And is this person going to be a person who grows throughout their life? Is this person going to be a person who will consistently love me? That's what you're looking for, people. That's what you're looking for. Don't look for the person who had necessarily has, I mean, don't write them out off. You know, if the guy looks great and he has a lot of money in the bank 
don't just write him off because, you know, I, I, I got to make sure I'm being, you know, whatever. But don't write off the guy. Maybe he doesn't look quite the best compared to some others. Maybe he doesn't have hardly anything. Maybe he has like two nickels to rub together at this point in his life. What you want to look at there is, is he a hard worker? Not what does he have, but his character, is he a hard worker? Evaluate. If you're with a guy, he's, you know, he drives a really nice car and he has a lot of money. Did he do anything for that? Has he ever worked? If he has, good. But if he hasn't, then you need to see that he would actually be a person who works. Not a person who's just, you know, going to live off mommy and daddy's money till he's 40. Check into those sorts of things. Look at the character of the person. And I'm going to tell you for that, whether you're just looking to date someone or you've been dating someone for a while and it's committed but you're not engaged, or even if you're engaged, like whatever level that is, does he love God? Does he love Jesus? Does he have character? If you're married, stay married. Cultivate your marriage. Help each other to be the person that they're supposed to be in Jesus. Help each other to grow. Sometimes we fail in that. We get so busy in life, in work, in our activities, and all the things we're running around doing, even in our own kids, that we stop investing in our spouse like we should. But if you're married, that always has to be a priority. Spouse before kids. Hey, your kids, one day they're going to leave the house. You're still going to be in it with that other person, hopefully for a long time. Like, you better invest there. It's not that you neglect your kids, but invest there in that, in that marriage relationship. Invest in that marriage relationship, whoever you are, whatever point you are, whether you've been married for six months, a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, invest in that. Invest in it. Help the other person to be all that they can be. And if you have issues that need to be dealt with in your marriage, whatever they are, emotional, sexual, spiritual, seek wise counsel. Don't, if, if you haven't been able to handle it, if it's still a problem, you know, if, it, if it's been a problem for six months and it's still a problem, then it's time to talk to somebody. Right? Don't let it just go on and on for years. The earlier you deal with it, the easier. Let's pray. Dear Father, a lot of this is hard to talk about. A lot of this is difficult for us because we all do bring in our own experiences, our own brokenness, our own sin and difficulties, Lord, our own pains and hurts. We also bring in our own strengths, our own victories. Lord, the good things, we bring all of that in together, and we need you. I hope that most of all, as we read this, as we look at this passage of Scripture, that, Lord, you would show us our need for you and to put you first in all things, dear Jesus. You are worthy. And, Lord, those of us who are married, help us to love the one we're married to. Help us to invest. Help us to spiritually invest, emotionally invest. Invest in every way, Lord, in that other person. Lord, it's hard to be single and to be single for a long time. So for those people, I pray that you would give them grace and strength and help in their time of need. For those you've called to be single, Lord, help them to enjoy their singleness and view it as a gift from you. For those who are in that state temporarily, Lord, we pray that you would give them the strength, help them to avoid the sexual sin and temptation. Lord, it's so hard. One of the most difficult things in our lives is that question of you know, when, when we feel we're supposed to be married, but we're not sure to who it is. Lord, to figure that out, we ask for your protection, for your wisdom, for your guidance. 
Lord, for each person is there, and each one is in different situations, pray that you would help us to apply these scriptures correctly, thoughtfully, with discernment, with wisdom. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray. We need you. Lord, help us to have grace with one another, to love one another. And ultimately, Lord Jesus, help us to know you are the one who our lives are to be centered around. And so we, as we take that bread and we take that cup this morning, Jesus, we give you thanks for your bread, for the bread that represents your body and for the cup that represents your blood. And we ask for your help, dear Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.